April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am thrilled to say that this episode is made possible by the fantastic people at Real Products. All of Rio's lines are designed and thoroughly tested by passionate fly fishers. Since my entrance into the sport, Rio has been my fly line of choice, and with the Rio Gold being the best-selling trout line in the world, it's clear I'm not the only one who feels this way. Find out more about the best fly line for your fishery at rioproducts.com. Here you will find fly lines made specifically for just about every species willing to take a fly. Even if you're not in the market for a new line at this time, between the blog, how-to video series, line descriptions, and the real line selector guide, you are guaranteed to learn something new. Again, that's www.realproducts.com. Per Arneberg splits his year between Norway and the USA. A passionate and longtime angler and entrepreneur, Per oversees the management and operations of the Norwegian Fly Fishers Club. He has taken an active role and responsibility for continuing the NFC's conservation work of not only the Gowler River, but wild salmon throughout its range. During my last visit to the NFC, I was able to sit down with Per for a brief discussion about the club and fishing in Norway. I'm Norwegian, but I, uh, Norwegian because my parents are both Norwegian. I was born in the U.S., but very much so feel Norwegian because I grew up spending every summer over here. So that's sort of where my fishing for salmon and sea trout started was literally June 1st. We would pack up, day school got out, we would hop on a plane and go to Norway, and we wouldn't come back until the end of August. So my summers were entirely Norwegian. And then siblings? Siblings, I'm the youngest of four. Um, older sister, lives in southern Norway now, also grew up in the States, and then two older half-siblings, but who have never really lived in Norway, spent a little bit of time. But me and my, my sister, we are both, you know, fluent Norwegian, Norwegian citizens, and again, spent every summer over here. You just come from such an interesting background. You're just, we'll touch on it briefly for the listener. Your dad is a very successful businessman, and has his fingers in all these pots, and you now, also a businessman, have your fingers in so many pots, it's hard to focus on just the Norwegian fishery part of things. But what I will tell people is, if you look into the businesses that you own, you're extremely forward-thinking, and you're very, very focused on sustainability as much as you can be in business. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, you know, I... uh being the youngest, and I'm the only one who worked with my dad. My dad, 87 years old, and worked in shipping his whole life, um, but always also been kind of visionary in looking outside of just that, collected art, and then our latest, biggest project has been working on wood pellets, renewable resource fuel, that we have a number of factories in the U.S., all for export, all for co-firing with coal, so reducing emissions, and yeah, NFC is really, Norwegian Fly Fishers Club is really my passion project, but it's sort of like one of, I would say, our, you know, overall group of things we work on. Is he involved with the NFC, or is this you? This is me. He's involved to the extent that he was supportive of it and helped me get, put the project together and, and, and the funding to start this thing. And he's up here once a year and, and does some fishing. 87, you know, he's still super determined to fish, but he's 
not the guy he used to be in the river, you know, can't wait as well and so on. But he's, you know, he, he loves it up here and, and loves to be out here. The biggest joke is he always jokes he wants to find a um, great worm fishing hole because he's going to outfish all of us with our flies. So Got it. I've got my yeah. head wrapped around it. Exactly. Now, talk to me about the fishing side of things. Where, where did the fishing start? Did your dad fly fish when you were younger? Yeah, the fishing started, I think, with my dad every summer dragged us along to fish. So he fished on the West Coast, on the Lairdal River, and up in northern Norway, Alta a lot. And we also trout fished a lot. So for me, I think it was trout fishing in the mountains in Norway, you know, food fishing. We were out there and there's a million small brown trout and you fish and you eat some brown trout. But also tagging along with him and not really being allowed to fish because I was too young. Ooh, and did this that was, work? Did that make you want to do it more? A hundred percent. I'm going to do that with my kid. Oh, I was you thinking should. about that yesterday. Yeah, well, it was one of these things where... It was, I was never pushed to do that. That was always the adult's realm. So by the time they went out fishing at night, and especially on the Lairdal on the West Coast, they really only fished at night. So they were like tucking us in when they were going out to go fishing. So it was always this thing that I was excluded from a little bit. And it was like, when you get older, you know, and then I got a little older and it was like, okay, we'll let you do a little sea trout fishing, you know, cause that wasn't as cool as the salmon fishing. And then eventually, finally, I got old enough, they let me come. And then uh, I think the first big experience was when I was 12 years old, and I got to go with him to northern Norway, and I caught a big salmon, a 12 kilo, which is, you know, 25 pound plus, which was as long as I was. And I think it kind of just sealed it for me. But then, of course, you know, you start growing up, and things change. I went to college, and I kind of just forgot about fishing. And not forgot about it, but it just, like, falls to the wayside a little bit. And I think it was one of those things, too, where it was always, like, Something I did with my dad, I'd never really done it on my own, and then I went to University of Vermont and, you know, didn't go home that much, was just always busy with friends, and all of a sudden I realized there's a lot of good trout rivers up there, so I got one of my dad's old trout rods and just started messing around and kind of rediscovered fly fishing on my own, mm. which was cool, and then I realized, wow, this is really fun, and after college, um, Margo, my wife and I, moved to Norway. And then my dad gave me a book, Norway's 300 Salmon and Sea Trout Rivers. And I just, you know, bedtime, started reading it and flipping through, and I'm like, there's so many opportunities here. And it sort of made me reminisce back on growing up and my childhood and all that stuff that I'd kind of forgotten about. So I started kind of exploring around Norway. I had all this free time in between work and especially in the summertime when it's so light here. So I started, you know, just booking some fishing here, buying a day card there going around and fishing. So for me, salmon fishing was one of those things that it was always a big part of our summer when I was a kid, but more in this, like, that's what the men do. That's what my dad does. That's like what one day you might do, you know, and trout fishing was sort of like, yeah, that's fun. That's cool. But it was a different realm. And then it kind of just fell away until I moved back. And again, just like rediscovering trout fishing, I kind of rediscovered it on my own. And that's where I ended up coming up to the Gaula. Who did you come with? You came by yourself? Came by myself. And why the Gaula? Because there's a lot of rivers in Norway with salmon. So I fished a number of other rivers and a lot of rivers in Norway, actually the majority are partially or entirely dammed. A lot of hydroelectric power in Norway. The Gaula is not. It's one of the few big salmon rivers that's still wild in the sense that it's you know, a flood river, a spate river. So every day, all the time, it's rising and it's falling. And actually the first time I came, I didn't catch a single thing. 
I didn't get near a fish. Other people were Sounds catching right. fish. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like oh, typical. Atlantic salmon will do your head. In. Oh if you haven't fished for Atlantic salmon before, uh, anyone who's listening, you have to. But be prepared to be patient. Definitely. You know, I, I feel like talking to people who do a lot of steelheading and they talk about fish of a thousand casts. Well, this is maybe a fish of ten thousand casts, or you know, it's similar, but it's it's challenging. And and I showed up, and there was a. The river normally runs at anywhere from 50 to 200 cubic meters per second. We were at 1,200 cubic meters the, w- the first week I came. What? So there were cows floating downstream. There were RVs. There were cars. Um, so I had no idea what I was doing. And by the end of the week, and again, the river rises and falls so quickly, it dropped back into shape. But I still didn't know what I was doing, so I left. And being the type of person who doesn't like to give up easily... Right away, I booked myself to come back. And who are you booking through? Norwegian Fly Fishers Club. Okay. Which is where I ended up taking over. And how long have you um, been in existence for? So it was started in 1988 by oh, Manfred. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. been around for you know over 25 years now. And um, it had just great water. He was running it out of the Stern Hotel, which was okay. But it was really, for me at that point... This crazy idea of you can fish 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. and here I am. Like, can you explain that? Because yeah. So anyway, in Norway, um, the salmon fishing season is really short. It's just June, July, and August, and you're allowed to fish 24 hours a day. And it's light 24 hours. It's a day. light 24 hours a day, at least June and July. And so you get this kind of weird insomniac zombie <laughs> fishing modus going on, and especially being young and being really like eager to fish. I would fish like 18 to 20 hours and then just crash in my car and then wake up again and fish. It's amazing. You actually feel, and I can say this from experience, having been here twice now, when you come here, it's like being in a twilight zone because you you literally forget what day it is. You forget what time it is. I go into a time warp when I'm here. Oh, 100% because three in the morning almost looks like three in the afternoon, you know? And so you just keep fishing. Sorry, I totally don't mean to cut you, but like your emails go to shit because now all of a sudden you can't... Anyway, I could go on and on about why you fall apart, but just imagine this. Imagine if you literally have to look at your schedule and be like, okay, I don't particularly like that beat, so I'm going to sleep for those six hours, or maybe I'll get the last two hours of that beat, and then I'll sleep for three hours of that beat, and sleep sleep for three hours of this beat. And it is a real, real unnatural way of looking. Oh, it totally is, and it, it messes with your head. You know, you fish till midnight, and then you sleep two hours, and you're back up at two or three in the morning, and you fish till six, and then you want to take a break. And So it's this crazy, crazy schedule. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I started coming up more and more to the gaula and kind of wanted to crack the code here and started working on spay casting you know i'd grown up and when i grew up spay casting was nothing in norway there was none so it was all two hand rods but it was overhead casting with big long belly lines or even single hand rods and then in that time period where i was you know in high school and college spay rod fishing especially scandinavian style started coming and so by the time i started fishing again this was a whole revolution here you know just probably in the same way skagit line fishing developed uh, on the west coast so that was something to learn and i learned from all the swedish guides here who are phenomenal casters which was very very um eye-opening so it took me a little bit of time to both figure out how you fish when to fish all this stuff but i just kind of fell in love with the fact that it's a wild river really big fish and just a beautiful valley i mean these fish get to how big some of the biggest fish in the river are 20 kilo. I think this year there's five or six over 20 kilo, which are, you know, 40 pound plus. 
every couple of years there's fish in the 50 pound class. So, you know, in terms of size of fish, probably besides the Alta Northern Norway, I think the Gaula on average has some of the biggest salmon. Like in June, our average size is over 20 pounds, which for Atlantic salmon, you know, a lot of people talk about 20 pound fish, but in reality, a 20 pound fish is a big, big fish. It's a big fish. Yeah. I think when I came here, I mean, I, I didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And then, and I'd flown into, did I fly into Trondheim last time you I was did. here? You did, yeah. So flying into Trondheim, that's kind of what I expected. Everything kind of looked, I mean, I didn't fly into Trondheim proper because the airport's out of the city, right? It is, yeah. And, you know, you drive by some buildings, they kind of look a little Ikea-ish. Definitely. You know, you Definitely. feel like everything's clean, everybody's polite. Like, I felt like I was in what I expected Norway to be, but... As you drive, because it's an hour and a half out of the yeah. airport to get here, everything's so green, and all the buildings are red and white. Yeah. What is, I know there's a story behind <clears throat> it. You know, I think it's just very traditional. Norway is such a small country. You know, landmass-wise, it's a decent-sized country, but there's, the population is so low that I don't think Norwegians have changed much in the last hundred years. Of course, the 50s, 60s, when they discovered oil, everything blew up, and Norway has this phenomenal economy. But at the same time, a valley like this, these farms have not changed. So these old traditional farmhouses, all painted white, that was sort of the exclusive color to have, but it was expensive. Oh. So you only painted your main house that, and red, and the reason why all the barns are red is that was much cheaper. They used, uh, I think it was pigment from like the copper mines and so on to get that red color. So that was a much cheaper color. And then you had yellow. So you really only see those three colors on these farms. And this valley, especially because of how green and lush it is, it's really good farming valley. But the Salmon River is probably one of the biggest resources they've had over the last couple hundred years. And resources how? Not because of the club, but because of the meat, like from a meat standpoint. A hundred percent. So, I mean, up until, you know, probably 10 years ago, this was a uh, subsistence fishery. People were fishing for meat. I think it was probably up until 30 years ago, people were fishing with nets in the river. So then that finally changed and stopped, and then there was, you know, the era of prawn fishing and worm fishing, and, and finally prawn fishing phased out, and slowly it seems like the worm fishing's phasing out. Yeah. But it's, you know, what I always felt growing up in the U.S. versus Norway is Norway, while having this great economy based off their oil and gas, they're kind of hanging behind on some things, especially conservation. Right. So what we probably saw in the U.S., 10, 15, 20 years ago with catch and release. And these days you would never go to like the Henry's Fork and kill a trout. Probably wouldn't be invited back to fish by the guide. You probably wouldn't have a guide who would want to guide you. Here, there's still a quota to kill fish. And people do definitely still take fish. So that's one of the things that I have to give Manfred, the former owner of NFC, praise for because he was one of the big proponents to start catch and release on the river. And, and we followed up with that. So we are at like 99% catch and release. We release almost everything, unless it's bleeding, which of course you can't. But what I've sort of figured out in dealing with the societal differences between how we view it in the U.S. and how people view it here is that, you know, salmon fishing in Norway goes back to Viking times. There's actually in the old Viking texts references to the rights of salmon fishing because it was such a big, important part of the diet. I mean, Norway is cold nine months of the year, so you get this short, intense growing season for three months where you're also harvesting, and you're harvesting fish. Mm -hmm. But in a way, uh, I think because of that, Norwegians didn't really understand this idea of catch and release and why 
a fish can be valuable as a resource not to be eaten. So my argument is always that catch and release, I hope, should be a, a part of a bigger strategy called sustainable harvest. And that if we practice it well enough, we can get back to the point one day where there's so much fish in the river that you can take a grills, a small salmon, to have a wild salmon meal without feeling like you're impacting that river. Mm-hmm. Right now, can we do that? Do I feel like we can do that? No, I don't think so. I think right now, the salmon population probably around the world is not sustainable enough that we should be killing any fish. What's the return rate here? Uh, I think it's about 20,000 fish coming back every year. So it's a good size run. Um, and Atlantic salmon don't die after spawning. so They don't. They're multiple spawners. Not all, but a fair amount. And the Gaula has a lot of both two and three sea winter fish. So you have, that's why we have very big fish here. But at the same time, what we see is even just trying to shift people who want to kill fish, their sort of perspective on it, away from killing the big fish and rather taking a smaller fish because you want those genes in the river. Yeah. So if they're going to take fish either way, just shifting that perspective. But I, I do think that even since we came in and took over, there has been a big shift. Well, let's talk about that. When did yeah. you come in and take over? Because I want to talk to you about how the water rights work here. Yeah. But first, yeah. I just want to make it clear, you have since bought the club. Yeah, so since in 2012, um, had been fishing here then two, three years, and um, entered into negotiations with Manfred, the former owner, to buy the club out. And by club, you know, it's not a private club, it's, it's sort of just a term for the operation we have here. And I saw the water that he had put together to fish on was some of the best on the river. Can you explain that for people who only have public water? Yeah, exactly. So as opposed to in the U.S. or in Canada where you have public water, where anyone can access it, put on, float, or wade, here in Norway, the vast majority, at least of salmon rivers, are privately owned by landowners. It's their riparian rights. So they own a farm, and where that farm pours into the river, that piece of riverfront is their beat or their piece of river. So what we do is we lease water from farmers based on the pool or a certain stretch. We lease it exclusively. So our guests have, you know, again, every six hours for 24 hours, you get a new piece of river, a new pool to fish on. And what Manfred had done over 25 plus years was put together a portfolio of really good fishing. And the Gaula is sort of divided. You've got the lower river, which is below the Gaulfossen, which is the, it's not technically a waterfall, but a big stone alleyway that fish can't pass up till the river drops enough. And then you have the upper two thirds. And what he had done, and we've since added to, was put together water both below the Gaulfoss and above. Because in June, if the water's high and cold, the fish can't pass above that. So if you only have fishing above that, you won't have any fish, maybe even for three weeks. So with this rotation, every six hours new fishing, you're constantly changing in different parts of the river. And with Atlantic salmon fishing, which we've experienced this week too, it's all about right place, right time. Mm-hmm. So fish are constantly moving. Later in the season when the river drops, they'll hold in pools, but early season, they're always running from one pool to the next from one part of the river. So with this rotation, you've got a really good chance that, oh, I missed them in the lower river. I drove upstream, boom, fish showed up there, and I hooked and landed a fish there. Coming up, Pear and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Rio for making this episode of Anchored possible. 
All real lines are made with pride in Idaho, USA. Using industry-leading technology such as their ultra-low stretch connect core, Rio is always striving to develop the most sophisticated, strenuously tested products available. Visit www.rioproducts.com to learn more. So when we took over, Manfred was running the business out of the Stern Hotel, which is a old hotel in the, the small town of Stern, which is sort of the center point of the river. But we just kind of felt like it, it wasn't totally conducive to the fishing vibe. The year after we took over, overtook a small lodge up on the river, um, about eight kilometers east, which is upriver of Stern. And basically renovated that lodge. It was a small fishing lodge, put in a bar, a fly shop, a kitchen, dining room, and then expanded on with the whole accommodation wings. We have 14 rooms, two of which are suites, two are double rooms. Basically all the rest are single rooms with sauna and porch, nice fireplace. Mm -hmm. What's really cool is there's not very many places on this river where you're riverfront because the river floods so much. They're very conscious of letting anyone build too close to the river because you get 1,200 cubics and all of a sudden cabins or whatever are washed out. Um, But we're up on a high bank overlooking the river with a beautiful pool. We call it Lodge Pool right below. So that was sort of my feeling was taking over this place. The water was great. The accommodation and service is what needed to be lifted up. And I think maybe that's my American side. Having fished in different places and seen... When you travel and you're spending money to go and fish for trophy fish, you know, me at 25, I was happy to sleep in my car and fish 20 hours a day. But let's be honest, the average salmon fisherman is probably closer to 65 than 25, and they don't want to sleep in their car, and they don't, they want to eat something good, and they want to sit by the river and enjoy a cigar or whiskey or whatever. So I kind of felt like, all right, we've got the good fishing, now we've got to elevate the rest so we kind of get like this whole package, which is also kind of unique in Norway because traditionally salmon fishing was, you know, Englishmen came over and they rented a farmhouse from a farmer, and maybe the farmer's wife cooked for them, or they cooked themselves, and they were very self-sufficient. And so this idea of like a a quote-unquote lodge, which is much more, I think, Western American built-up tradition, was a little bit different for them here. But I think while my idea was to cater to Americans or, in a sense, to the higher-end clients, because I think Americans do know what they like and Europeans aren't as used to it, I think we've had a really good response from all of our clients that... Yeah, it's it's really nice to have that service-minded experience of a lodge and have everything you need in a fly shop there and a bar there and access to the river where you don't have to drive or, or go anywhere. So that's kind of been my idea, to pull it all together into one one thing. And it's worked. And, and there are a couple elephants in the room that I will get to because I know there's some people with some thoughts in their head. I'll get there. Yeah, I know yeah. what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, just something that I, that I really like, just some feedback, is I love that hiring a guide is optional. Mm. I really love that. So a lot of the people here are just self-guided. They basically, they stay at the lodge or they stay, you can stay at a, set it up to stay at a farmhouse, which is what, what I do when I'm up here. Mm-hmm. You get your own car, you get your rotation. So that's one of the things that I really love about here is that you can, you can make it what you want when you come here. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of been trying to adapt how the system was from Manfred's time to having this full lodge experience. But salmon fishing, at least in Europe, has a big tradition of, you know, a group of guys come and they're experienced. They've fished for 20 years. They don't need a guide. They don't want 
you know, full service with meals and alcohol and everything included, they want to be a little bit left to the, themselves. And so what we do and kind of from Manfred's time and from sort of traditional Norwegian salmon fishing, we rent a number of farmhouses, like the one you stay in up at Bogen Sandra. That's one of the first houses that was built for English salmon fishermen. So this goes back to, you know, early 1800s when Englishmen came by yacht from the UK to Norway. That was my next question. When did the Englishmen start coming here? So I think the first Englishman to the Gaula, I'm a little unclear of which river in Norway was the first, but I think it was, you know, 18, 17, early 1800s they came. But originally what they would do is they would come by yacht and anchor in the river mouth opening. Yeah, because how far are you from the ocean here? Um, f- from Sturin, we're about... 60 kilometers to the ocean. so pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. But what they would do is, at that point, there was three Englishmen that divided the whole river. They each had a section, the lower, the middle, and the upper, and that was their river. And every day, when they first came, they would either be pulled upriver in canoes or take horse and carriage up. And after a few years, they got to know the farmers. So what ended up happening is the farmers saw the value in having sport fishing. So sport fishing has existed here since the early 1800s. So what they ended up doing was starting to host the Englishmen. So on their farm, they ended up building dedicated houses, very often called like an English house, more Victorian style, a little bit different than Norwegian style. And these houses would sit empty for nine months. And then when the Englishmen came, they would move in and the farmer's wife would cook for them, and the farmer would be their klipper, which is their gaffer, or their gilly. Back then, every fish was taken, so it was gaffed, and this became like their summer holiday. So, yeah, there's a, a, a really long tradition there, and so the, like the house you stayed in is one of the original English houses, of course, renovated a bit, and I really like that idea that, yeah, we have the lodge, we have full service with meals and everything and guiding, but you can also do it a little bit like the Englishman did back in the 1800s. You come, you're a little more self-sufficient, you fish on your own, you dictate when you want to be in the river, when you don't. If you come as a group of four guys or six guys, you can cook for yourself, however you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And and with the guiding too, you know, of course, if you're a if you're new to salmon fishing, it's great to have a guide with you. You know, we have 12 kilometers of river and it's broken up all throughout the river. So even just getting from one place to another can be a little tricky, but reading the water gear selection, knowing what lines to fish, it's great to have a guide with you. But at the same time, if you come and you know all of that, you fish the gaula for 10 years, you just want to do your own thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, finding that balance between clients who want everything taken care of for them and clients who want to be totally independent is something that for me is very important because I don't want it to be exclusionary by any means. You right. know, this is a river that has a strong tradition of both you know, very high-end clientele coming and fishing the best pools and also being a public access river with very affordable fishing for Norwegians. And that's a very Norwegian concept too, that the whole country, all the wilderness, everyone has access to. Mm -hmm. So if you own 100 acres, anyone can camp there, anyone can hike through there. And, And I think that's a really important thing for foreign visitors to see too, is that yeah, you know, you're coming and you're fishing exclusive water with us at Norwegian Fly Fishers Club, but this river should still be for local people as well. I'm happy that you brought me there because you just segued me into my first elephant. So in the States, as you know, if you take public water, mm-hmm. which let's get this clear, it's it's never been public water. Yeah. But if you do take water and you privatize it mm-hmm. and you're a Donnie Beaver, you're the devil. Yeah. And I understand in a lot of ways how that works. Yeah. But... 
here the difference is it was never public, right? It was never public because it's always been owned and controlled by the farmers. If you didn't have the leases, would the average Joe Blow be able just to walk up to a farmer's house and knock on it like they do in New Zealand and have access? Uh, not for free, I would say. But, you know, e- even there are still pieces of water or farmers who rent out water and they'll sell day cards or week cards. But they're still making money off of it because it's one of the resources. And it's so, their history. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. And it's their history. I think, again, going back to like the 1800s, this became, you know, besides just the subsistence fishing where they took fish out and sent it to Oslo and got money in return on the train. You know, sport fishing has a long tradition here. And while you you have these hunting and fishing clubs throughout the valley and different parts along the river where you can get very cheap fishing, it's not anywhere like you could just buy a fishing license and go and fish six miles of river and float from one place to another. That's just not how it is. But yeah, I mean, there has been over the years, and especially with operations like ours and on other rivers as well, where, you know, we're always vying for the best pools we can get. And these water leases are not, um, they don't last forever. It's three years, five years, 10 years. So, and the river's changing with every flood. So some pools develop and get better and better over years and some gravel up and are not as good as they used to be. So we're always looking to sort of update what fishing we have and change around. And there you can definitely get some friction because all of a sudden a, a piece of water that was cheap fishing for anyone then we go to the farmer and ask if we can rent it, and all of a sudden we take it over. So there, there is some friction there. Yeah, have you had but, a lot of backlash with the lo- with the Norwegian locals? You know, I would say, luckily having Norwegian background, I've been able to negotiate pretty well. I think in Manfred's time there was a lot of backlash because he was one of the first foreigners to come in and start leasing up water. But you still do. You still always have border disputes and you've got, you know, property lines that go through the middle of a pool. Mm -hmm. And so you're fishing down to your border and other people are fishing there. So it's interesting. I think for especially Americans coming, they're not used to that. You go out and you fish and you hire a guy and you float trip. There's, there's no, you get to a pool and you've got to stop halfway through the pool. But here it's property lines that go back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And some people get heated about that, you know, so it, it is challenging for sure. But um, I think, yeah, having the Norwegian background, being able to negotiate with landowners and, and show them what we're doing and talk about the value of an operation like ours, catch and release and, and trying to promote sustainability in the river. Mm-hmm. You know, the more fish we put back on our landowners' beats, the more spawning there will be on those beats, which increase their value. Right. And and that's something that I've worked a lot on is working with the landowners to understand that they have a resource and we're only managing their resource for them. So we need their support to help manage that resource as best as possible. And what other landowners do with their beats, while we would love to have an influence and help them manage it, you know, better, we have to focus on the water we have and work with our landowners. And that's also a big part of negotiating leases is the landowners we work with, are they thinking in that mindset or can they be convinced that catch and release and, you know, working on little side tributaries to put gravel back in for sea trout spawning, all these little projects that add up in the end that they see value in it because it's only increasing the value of their property. And to me, that's one of the most important things we do. Yeah. What about the community? The community, I would say 
has really embraced us since we took over. We have a lot of contacts with the locals here, and we talk a lot about sport fishing as it's not just us as a organization here making money off of guests coming and promoting the salmon fishing, but you know, you have the local fish smoker. If someone does end up having to kill a fish and they want to bring some smoked salmon home, you have the local grocery stores, you have, you know, the tackle shops besides our own. And I would say we have a very good relationship with them. The year after we started with NFC, we started a small nonprofit called the Gala Salmon Fund. And the idea behind that was there's a number of big salmon conservation organizations in Norway but they're all looking at the country as a whole and bigger issues, fighting salmon farming, fighting commercial netting, this kind of stuff. There wasn't any local grassroots organization, which we felt was lacking. So what we did, I sort of spearheaded that and went around to other both landowners and fisheries along the river and talked with them about whether they wanted to join and be a part of this thing. And what we've done is, so far we started out by fundraising. And basically in 2012 when we took over, for 180 kilometers of river, there was one river warden patrolling the whole river. So you can imagine that in a river where you will never have your fishing license checked, and all of a sudden stronger quotas against killing fish come in, people don't care one bit. So what we did was we started fundraising to build them up, and now we're up to 12 guys. Wow. So they're going around, they all have cameras, binoculars, they have information on catch and release. The, the whole campaign has been... Yes, they're river wardens to check fishing licenses to make sure people aren't breaking the quotas. They're also information sources. So they go around and there's numbers, information available to reach them. Because catch and release, as much as I think, again, as an American, it's sort of, oh, this is easy. Keep a fish in the water, you know, try and get the hook out as quick as possible and release the fish. Make sure it's, you know, swimming and, and, and breathing and so on okay. But for most people who are used to fishing for food... Even the idea of not pulling a fish onto the bank or holding it upstream as opposed to downstream, all of these things, they're, they're, they're not ingrained, you know? It's something that needs to be taught. And so having these people as both protection for the river as well as an information source, I think has been really good. So you can see every year the, the rates of poaching, the rates of people being caught fishing over the quota are going down and down and down. And what's interesting with that too is we have a new statistic system this year, digital one where you log in your fish. Since 2012 to today, 2012, I think fly fishing consisted of about 25% of the catch on the river. You know, in Norway, we can still fish with spoons, and we still even fish with worms, but it's less and less and less. Today, we're up to about 75% fly caught salmon. Wow. And while this might sound shocking for Americans where catch and release is 100%, from 2012 to today, catch and release went from about 10% up to 50-60% today. So those rates are going up as well. And I think it has a lot to do with both education as well as having, you know, these river wardens around who are being seen more and more as a part of the valley and the system and less as, you know, police who are going around trying to just cause problems. So that's kind of been one of our main goals. Uh, and then the idea is really to work with the local community. You know, through the Gala Salmon Fund, we got a lot of local businesses who supported us. You know, local bakeries, grocery stores, sports stores, who all saw that in the years when the salmon fishing got bad, their revenue dropped. And in Norway, where you have nine cold months and three beautiful months, 
those three months really count for a small community like this, you know? So they really saw the value in donating and helping support to build up the stock of the salmon again so that, you know, you get tourism back here. It's super important, I think. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. My last elephant, and then I have to catch a flight, yeah. is I remember when I first came here, you and I remember I was starving, and we went to, like, Burger King. Oh, yeah. It's like two Burger King meals came to something ridiculous, like $40 American. This is the most expensive country I've ever been to. And I live half the year in British Columbia, which is notorious for how expensive it is, and half the year in... Manly Beach, Australia, just out of Sydney. Like, I live in some pretty expensive places. Yeah. This is unbelievable. So, without going too much into that, just because we're kind of on a time constraint, I know that the public, like, minimum minimum wage is, like, twenty over 20 bucks an hour, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is Norway, Norway up until the 1560s was a relatively poor country of fishermen and farmers. Really? And then oil and gas was discovered in the North Sea. And all of a sudden, you know, quote unquote, every Norwegian became a millionaire. I mean, that's per capita because what Norway's done, which has been extremely smart, is as they discovered oil and gas and as they started exporting, they put all of the revenue from that into a big sort of national trust, which they keep reinvesting. So per capita, Norwegians have more money than probably anybody in the world, maybe yeah. besides like the Saudis or something. So what that means is very high minimum wages, very good social programs, you know, eight months maternity leave and six weeks paternity leave and free education. So Norwegians' quality of life is extremely high. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really take into account tourism because people come here and they're shocked. Yeah, one beer is like eight, ten bucks in certain places, like in Oslo. So there's definitely a hurdle there. So one of our biggest challenges with the lodge was... You know, we don't want to price people out either. That was my next question. So, okay, go, go for it. I'll yeah. just let you go no, for it. So, you know, I think comparative to King Salmon Fisheries, Steelhead Fisheries, Big Game, you know, Anadromous Fisheries, I think we're right in there. But it's definitely a challenge. I think people show up and eating outside of the the lodge and with us, they see how expensive it is. So it's, it's definitely cost prohibitive coming here, even if you rent a country house and you're cooking on your own. Um, it certainly is. So what we try to do is we try to work as much with the local farmers as we can. So one of our, the farm you're staying at, Bogan Sandra, that farmer is a huge hunter. So we get a lot of our meat from him. We get half a moose, a couple reindeer. Every week now we're doing local lamb asados. So we're doing grilled lamb over. So what we're trying to do is, you know, and again, Norway, in my opinion, hang a little bit behind on trends like organic and local all of a sudden, you have this new term in Norwegian, kort reist mat, which means short-traveled food. And it's, it's eating local, basically. And so all of a sudden, you see that people are also reacting to the cost of food and living here and saying, but we have good stuff around us. Yeah, we're not growing avocados in the Gaula Valley, but there's beautiful lamb. There's beautiful potatoes and veggies and fruit. You know, some of the best berries in the world, the raspberries uh, we ate last night. So good. So in my mind, and again, probably growing up in the U.S. and then bring that over here, I see the value very much so in trying to focus on local stuff. So it's like, yeah, okay, Norway's still not cheap, but we're creating a package for people where you're getting a Scandinavian experience and you're also getting to taste what Norway really is 
and and the flavors from here without it breaking the bank right. you know but no for sure it's it's definitely a challenge and and convincing people to come over here you know it's it's expensive definitely do you do day trips or is everything run in a week long package we do day trips a bit later in the season normally not like high season which is end of june and and july because we're pretty much fully booked but if people are traveling through very often we get like businessmen coming to trondheim I fish steelhead back home. I live on the west coast of the U.S. Can I come for a day or two? And, of course, if we can accommodate that. You know, we always tell people because it's salmon fishing and one-day fishing, yeah, you might have a couple shots at a fish. You might also not have any shots at a fish. So one day of fishing is tough, you know, and especially if you're not uh, used to fishing with big 13 to 15-foot spay rods. You spend half that day just getting your cast down. So, but, yeah, we try to do that or even, like, half weeks for people, whatever we can to get people in and just get them stoked on it and, you know, I think for me, one of the big challenges was beginners. It's not an easy, you know, fly fishing for trout, it's a relatively easy thing to get into and catch a couple trout and, you know, you, you get sort of your beak wet, so to speak. But with salmon fishing, it's a big barrier of entry. And yeah, I'm sure like this week, all the beginners are getting, I know, right. I know. Bastards. Yeah. You and me, we're, we're out there casting yeah. our hearts out. We can't get near a fish and these guys casting just barely their shooting ahead or hooking fish after fish. It's like the lesson for sure. But that's also salmon fishing. You know, it's like, yeah. I think it's, I don't know, maybe 20% skill and 80% luck, totally. you know, yeah. but, uh, but that's kind of what's fun about it too, is anyone can go out there and make a terrible cast and boom there's a 30 pound fish and then you and i are out there casting and mending and switching flies and debating shooting heads and we don't touch a fish no. so but that's that's it's part of it that's though. the beauty of it too so yeah is there anything you would like to add or ask me when are you coming back next no year. yeah sure. exactly 100 like we already got year. you coming in next year i yeah. can't wait yeah people who don't know um i met my husband here because of the lovely pair, thank you, pair, that you introduced me to him in one of those old farmhouses. Exactly. And then here we are now again, four years later, I'm back pregnant, and then Charles and I will be back next year with baby in hand. Can't wait. We're excited. So thank Can't you. Wait. We actually really owe you. Thank you. No, thank you. It was great to have you here, and nice to have you guys back, and looking forward to meet the little one next year, too. Us, too. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next week as I sit down with Joseph Brooks to learn more about his great uncle. This is one episode you are not going to want to miss.